Let's come to our text for this morning. I'm going to have you turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 3. And if you're following along in the Bibles and the pews, that's on page 967. We're starting a new sermon series this morning during the season of Lent. Lent actually began a couple days ago on Wednesday. We were supposed to have an Ash Wednesday service on Wednesday. If you remember, there was also quite a bit of water and ice and freezing going on on Wednesday. So we didn't end up having it. When I first started at Brookfield Christian Reformed Church, the church I served before taking the call here, um, one of my responsibilities was to oversee our high school youth ministry. And for that first year, it seemed like every event we tried to plan outdoors uh, had rain. And so my leaders started to refer to it as Brandon's Reign of Rain, because we had to cancel and postpone just about every event. This second year here at Ivanrest feels like it's been Brandon's Reign of Snow, Ice, and Disease. So hopefully year three will be a little better. But so we're starting a new sermon series this season of Lent. We're going to be rooting ourselves in the book of Hebrews. Uh, We're beginning here with chapter 1. And just a note, um, I'm indebted to Tom Long for this sermon. Every once in a while as a pastor, you come across a commentary that just helps way more than the others. And that was the case for this passage. Tom Long's commentary on Hebrews was instrumental in this sermon. So I just wanted to give credit to him right from the start. With that in mind, let's read our text, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and this is what it says. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, the evening air was warm and calm as the young family picked their way through the 4th of July crowds at the park. Armed only with a can of bug spray and a blanket to sit on, the husband was looking for the perfect spot from which to view the fireworks. His wife followed close behind, leading their little girl by the hand. After a short search, they found a patch of grass that was open between a group of teenagers and an older couple, and they spread out their blanket and settled down to wait patiently for the fireworks show to begin. They didn't have to wait long, though, because after only a few minutes sitting there, a single white line of sparks shot up into the air where it popped into a balloon of red flares. The little girl jumped at the explosion, but soon her eyes were filled with wonder as firework after firework boomed and fizzled above them, filling the night sky with cascades of color. She squealed with joy when one of them formed itself into the shape of a smiley face and laughed nervously as the louder one seemed to shake even the ground underneath them. After about a half hour or so, one final rocket shot upward, exploded, and then there was silence. The little girl squeezed her mother's hand and said, that was the coolest thing I ever saw. Her parents exchanged a knowing glance and then her father leaned in and said, If you thought that was cool, wait until you see this. 
As if on cue, they heard the pop, pop, pop of dozens of launches, and suddenly the sky above them was illuminated with fireworks of every size, shape, and color. The display kept building and building until it reached a deafening roar, and the night seemed almost as bright as the day. You see, what that little girl had thought was the end of the show was actually just the brief pause before the grand finale. And like her father said, it was even cooler than what had come before. That's pretty much what the author of Hebrews is saying in this text, too. This might seem kind of obvious, but the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians in the early church. That's why it's called Hebrews. And the author of this book had one main goal, one main point, one main thing that he's trying to communicate, one main message that he wants to get across. That's because throughout this book, the author, and we don't know who he was, was trying to help his fellow Jews see how their history and purpose as a people pointed ahead to, built up to, and was getting ready for something. Like a fireworks display on the 4th of July, the author of Hebrews tells his readers that all of God's promises, all his faithfulness, all his work in and through them as a people over the long centuries has been building towards a finale. In essence, he says to them, if you thought all the stuff that God did in the past, his acts of power, his miracles, all his mighty actions in the Old Testament, if you thought all of that was cool, wait until you see this. And then, as if on cue, he points them to Jesus Christ. Now, in order to understand this passage and really this book as a whole, which, like I said, we're going to be spending this entire season of Lent in, we need to start by taking a step back and looking at some of the details of it. And the first thing we need to understand is what it is that we're actually reading here when we read the book of Hebrews. What kind of book is this? What kind of literature is this? After all, there's lots of different types of literature or genres of writing in the New Testament. There's gospels, there's history, there's letters, there's even a mysterious genre of literature known as apocalypse, which is what the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation is. And so what's this one? Well, as Tom Long writes in his commentary, even though the book of Hebrews has some epistles, some letter-like flourishes at the end, the main body of Hebrews bears all the marks of an early Christian sermon, what the author calls a word of exhortation, a homily of the sort surely preached in many of the first Christian congregations. Early Christian sermons were heavily influenced by the style of preaching done in the Jewish synagogue. And in terms of structure and methods of biblical interpretation, Hebrews appears to be an example of a sermon that is rabbinical or Jewish in design, Christian in content, and heroic in length. I'm sure that you would all enjoy if I preached more heroic length sermons, right? Um, In other words, instead of gospel or history or a letter, which is what many of the other books in the New Testament are, what we probably have here with Hebrews is an example of an early Christian sermon. And that, knowing that this is a sermon, informs how we read or understand what it's talking about. 
You see, because Hebrews is a sermon, the author of the book of Hebrews, the preacher, as Tom Long calls him, wasn't trying to accomplish the same sorts of things that the authors of the other New Testament books are trying to accomplish. Uh, For instance, he wasn't trying to be an ivory tower theologian like the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. He wasn't trying to record history like Luke in the book of Acts. And he wasn't trying to answer questions or give guidance like James in the book of James. Instead, what he was trying to do and you see this when you read this book, was pastor real people with real problems in the midst of the real situations that they were facing. Again, as Long writes, the preacher is not preaching into a vacuum. Instead, he is addressing a real and urgent pastoral problem, one that seems astonishingly contemporary. And what was that? What is this pastoral problem that this preacher is trying to address in this congregation that he's writing to? Long continues. He says his congregation is exhausted. They are tired. Tired of serving the world, tired of worship, tired of Christian education, tired of being peculiar and whispered about in society, tired of the spiritual struggle, tired of trying to keep their prayer life going, tired even of Jesus. Their hands droop and their knees are weak. Attendance is down at church and they are losing confidence. The threat to this congregation is not that they are charging off in the wrong direction. They do not have enough energy to charge off anywhere. Instead, the threat here is that worn down and worn out, they will drop their end of the rope and simply drift away. Tired of walking the walk, many of them are considering taking a walk, leaving the community and falling away from the faith. This congregation is tired. And so this preacher, their pastor, writes to them to encourage them. As Long says, though, that kind of tiredness, that kind of exhaustion, that wasn't just a problem for people back then in the early church, something that they were just facing back then. Instead, as he says, that kind of tiredness is astonishingly contemporary, a current problem for the modern church that we still face today. After all, how many of us maybe don't feel that way now? I mean, first of all, it's February, right? In Michigan. If our hands aren't drooping and our knees aren't a little weak, then I'm not sure that we remember what state we live in. Either that or we've just had a nice respite in Florida for a week or so. On the church side of things, the calendar's a little dead right now, too. It seems like all the fun stuff of the ministry year is already behind us. We've already had the picnic, the start of things like youth group and gems and cadets. We started, continued, and wrapped up our generosity near and far campaign. We've enjoyed the pig roast, celebrated Thanksgiving, had Christmas and New Year's. I mean, we don't even have any staff openings anymore. (laughs) It's my first time in two years. We don't have any staff openings, right? Things are boring all of a sudden. No one quit. (laughs) Then on the cultural side, we've had the elections, watched the Golden Globes, celebrated the Grammys, and even had the Super Bowl. Really, the only thing left to look forward to anymore is the Oscars. And who's really looking forward to the Oscars this year, right? The Banshees of Insurance. I mean, it's just a movie about a guy who cuts his fingers off. Except for Matt explained that there's a whole deeper allegorical meaning to it, and it's really a critique of the troubles between the Protestants and the Catholics and the Irish society back then. He explained that all to me this morning. I thought, oh, I missed all of that when I watched it. 
It feels like all the good stuff is already said and done in the rear view, behind us, and in the wake, here in the doldrums of late winter. At least some of us, I'm sure, are feeling tired, exhausted, worn out, and worn down. And yet that's precisely why this season of the church year that we're in now, the season of Lent, is so powerful. Now, Lent is known as kind of a dour season, right? One of my favorite theologians, Alexander Schmemann, used to refer to Lent as a season of bright sadness. I think that's pretty accurate because there is a sadness of sorts to Lent. There's a gravity to this season, a weightiness, a heaviness. But there's also, like he says, a brightness. You see, despite its reputation, Lent isn't just meant to be a gray, down-in-the-dump, singing-the-blues sort of time of the church calendar. That's sort of how we've come to understand it, but that's not really what it is. You see, Lent is a season of discipline, a season of self-examination, a season of hard work. That's why it gets that reputation a sort of a, a moody, brooding part of the church calendar, but there's a purpose to that. You see, Lent is a season where we look at ourselves, and I mean really look at ourselves, evaluate our lives, assess our faith, and then based on what we see, what we like and don't like, what's going well and what's not, we make tweaks, we make changes, we might even make some significant shifts or revisions. And that's not just that we can lose a few pounds by giving up chocolate or break our addiction to social media, at least for a few weeks, or experiment with what our life would be like if we gave up coffee or meat. That's often what Lent gets reduced to. Instead, the reason why we engage in this season of discipline and self-examination is so that we can learn the Christian art of perseverance and stamina and endurance. In other words, Lent is meant to meet us here in the doldrums of late winter and reinvigorate our faith, renew us, and breathe new life into our Christian walk so that we can keep walking as God has called us to do. And that's what the preacher of Hebrews does with this book, too. That's one of the underlying themes of this sermon. That's one of the things he hopes his readers, his exhausted, tired, burned-out readers, will walk away having heard. He hopes they walk away having heard encouragement, comfort, and a call to persevere to keep going, to keep walking in their faith. And he starts that call to perseverance by reminding them of the word of God. Not this word of God, mind you. Remember, this word of God in this form wasn't finalized until the late 4th century, about 300 or so years after this sermon we call Hebrews was written. Rather, the preacher begins this sermon of perseverance by reminding his readers that God, the same God who spoke creation into being in the beginning, has never stopped speaking. He spoke in the beginning when he created the universe. He continued speaking throughout history, specifically the people of Israel's history. And the preacher reminds his readers here, he is still speaking to you today. In other words, the preacher says, God has not left you in silence. 
He has given you his word. And in that word, he gives you his comfort, his nearness, his presence, and his peace. How does God do that? The preacher says in many ways. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Long writes, sometimes God speaks through visions and by stimulating flashes of insight. At other times, God speaks through political movements and the shaking of the powers. Here, God speaks in a dream or a waterfall. There, in a prophetic oracle or a pillar of fire. Or again, in the still small voice. The commandments of the law, the stories of kings, the restless and brooding spirit at the heart of the creation, or the journey of the sun across the noonday sky. God speaks in the quietness of prayer and the noise of honest debate. God sometimes speaks in powerful moments of spiritual wonder and also in the seeming humdrum of committee meetings. God's speech can be heard when nations make peace and when neighbors speak kindness across the backyard fence. God speaks through the Bible and also through the touch of a caring hand at bedside. God speaks in the voices of the choir, the beauty of art, the spangling of the heavens with stars, and the cries of the hungry for food, the lonely for companionship the sick for healing, the pressed down for hope. God speaks in many fashions. That's the preacher's point here. Writing to his exhausted, tired, worn-out congregation of readers, the first thing he wants to say to them, the very first thing, is God has not left you alone. He's not left you on your own. Instead, he has left you with his word. He speaks to you. And there is power, peace, and help to persevere, even just in that. But now, the preacher says, God has spoken again. There is a new revelation, a new word from God, a new something that he has said. And what is that? The preacher says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. To go back to the image we used in the introduction of this sermon, the fireworks display is over. The single shots here and there have ended. There's been a brief momentary pause, and now the grand finale has begun. God's revelation in many fragments and in various ways over many, many years and centuries has now reached a crescendo, a deafening roar, an overwhelming, overpowering, all-encompassing climax in the person of God's Son. And who is this Son? The preacher gives us a laundry list of details about him. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. What do we learn about him, this Son of God, this revelation, this new word from God to us? First, we learn that he's the heir of all things. That's probably a reference to Psalm 2, verse 8 there, which says, Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. 
What that means is that God's Son is the overseer, the inheritor, the owner of all things. All things belong to Him. All things are administered by Him, and all things find their meaning, value, significance, and worth in Him. God's Son is the heir of all things. He's also the one who created them. As the preacher says here, God made the universe through his Son, or as the Apostle John puts it in the opening of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. God made the universe through his Son. Then the preacher says his son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The Greek for that phrase, the exact representation of his being, is character tes hypostasios autu, which literally means the imprint of his substance, the reproduction of his nature, the image of his essence. Think of it like a coin, okay? Uh, Coins have pictures, they have imprints, they have images on them, right? They They show us a reproduction or a depiction of someone or something. That's what the preacher is saying God's son is like. He's the imprint, the depiction, the exact representation of God. He's also the sustainer. The preacher says the Son sustains all things by his powerful word. Now, typically in the Bible, God the Father is the one spoken of as the sustainer. But here the preacher says God's Son sustains all things. So what does that mean? Well, what the preacher is saying here is that the Father and the Son do the same things. The Father sustains the universe, and the Son sustains the universe. Both of them do the same kind of work, the same kind of tasks. And so what the preacher is trying to say here is they are one in the same. God's Son is God. He's making a statement about who God's Son is. Not only does the Son sustain all things, though, he also purifies them. The preacher will get into what that means in much, 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 much more detail in chapters 7, 8, and 9, and 10 when he talks about Jesus as high priest and sacrificial lamb. But the point he's making here is that God's Son is the one who purifies us from our sin, washes us clean, and presents us holy and spotless to his Father. Which brings us to the final thing the preacher says about the Son, which is that he sits at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. There's at least two things that are significant about that. There are many more, but for our purposes this morning, we'll just talk about two. First, the fact that the Son is sitting at God's right hand means that he has finished his work. After all, that's when you sit down, right, at the end of a long day when you are done with everything. And so the fact that the Son is sitting at God's right hand means he has accomplished everything he needs to. His work is done. It's complete. It is finished. And what that means for us is that our salvation is secure because there is nothing more that needs doing to accomplish it. I don't know about you, but I find incredible comfort in that. Because what that means is that there is nothing else I need to do to make sure that I am right with God. It has been 
done in Jesus. That work has been accomplished. But second, the son's seat next to the father means that he intercedes for us. As the hymn says, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. And that's what he does. The son sits at the right hand of his father to live, plead, and intercede for us on our behalf. So that's who this son is. He's the heir of all things and the creator of them. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He sustains us, purifies our sins, and sits at the right hand of God, having accomplished his work on our behalf to ever live and plead for us. And who is this son? What is his identity? His name is Jesus Christ. We call that the gospel. It's the good news of the Christian faith. It's the message of salvation. It's the word that God has been speaking ever since the beginning of creation. As the preacher of Hebrews says, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And what has he said in his son? He said, I love you. You are mine. And though you fell into sin, death, and destruction, I have never given up on you. I have never turned my back on you. And I never will. That's what he says here in this sign, in this sacrament. Not you are dead to me because of your sin, but instead I have brought you up out of the waters of death into new life. That's what God says to us through his son. I have moved heaven and earth for you. I am willing to do whatever it takes. I am willing even to give my dearly loved son for you. And my friends, in Jesus Christ, that is exactly what God has done. He has given his son as our savior. He is the heir of all things, the creator of the universe, the radiance of God's glory, the representation of his being, the sustainer of everything, the purifier of our sins, and the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. That's the message that God has given us. That's the word he has spoken. That's the good news of the gospel, that we have that person, that son of God as our savior. And that more than anything else, ought to sustain, strengthen, and help us endure to keep walking in our faith, that we have someone like that on our side. God has not left us without his word. In fact, in Jesus Christ, he's spoken his most important word ever. Let that be what carries us through this season of Lent and our faith going forward. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where once our sin obstructed the way, blocked us, made us stop in our tracks so that we could not approach you and your throne, we now have a Savior who sits at your right hand and lives and pleads for us. 
intercedes for us, has made a way for us back to you. Thank you for that Savior, Lord. Help him and that vision of him to be what leads us through these next 40 days of Lent. Lead us by your Spirit to examine our lives, to consider the parts of us that may not be of you, and how we instead need to recenter and refocus on you. It's in the name of the Savior we trust, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.